Last week, I, uh, <clears throat> at the end of the message, I, I ended and I introduced you to people you probably, someone you've probably already heard, uh, Ruby, uh, Ruby um, now I forgot her last name, Bridges, yeah, thank you, Ruby Bridges, who uh, basically by herself integrated one of the elementary schools in New Orleans with uh, one single teacher, and uh, I kind of held her up as this model of meekness, and I define meekness as this, as uh, strength moving in the right direction. And the word actually comes from the idea of, of yoking an ox to a wagon. And the, you don't remove the strength of the ox. He, the ox is still moving and strong, but he's moving in the right direction. Um, this morning, before we get into chapter 49, we need to look at, uh, kind of give you a synopsis of chapter 48. I'm going to introduce you to someone else, just the opposite of that. Uh, it's, uh, it's a woman by the name of, of Gudrun Berwitz. There she is. She died in 2018. Uh, this picture was taken just a couple years, I think, before she passed away. Uh, that's her as an older woman. And uh, this is her as a 12-year-old girl. Uh, she was the daughter of Henrik Himmler, uh, who most of you probably know the name. He, kind of, uh, he was the one who pulled together the SS police under Nazi Germany. He was the second leading official under Hitler. Uh, he also organized uh, the Gestapo, the secret police. He also organized all the, uh, the concentration camps and death camps throughout Europe where uh, they did, they did uh, medical experiments and then just killed millions and millions of people, mainly Jews, but, but uh, just about anybody else that didn't fit the ideal of, of Nazi Germany. Uh, she visited uh, the, the concentration camp Dachau when she was 12, uh, with her father, and she writes this in her diary. She says, Today, we went to the SS concentration camp at Dachau. We saw everything we could. We saw the gardening work. We saw the pear trees. We saw the pictures painted by the prisoners. Marvelous. And afterward, we had a lot to eat. It was very nice. She was, uh, the thing is, the, the, what I want to mention about her is that after all this happened and, uh, and the Allies marched into Germany, uh, Himmler was taken prisoner, uh, I think by the British, could have been by the Russian, but in British custody he committed suicide by, by chewing a, taking a, uh, a capsule, a suicide capital, ca uh, capsule, and, um, and he, she and her mom escaped to northern Italy. And she actually finally moved back to Germany and uh, even worked for the German intelligence agency uh, under an assumed name. And she got really involved in uh, helping refugees escape Germany. The SS uh, officers escaped Germany, mainly to Latin America. Uh, she was part of the reunion of, of SS officers. Uh, she was really active in the neo-Nazi uh, movement in Germany. And in other words, she was basically unrepentant till the day she died. Uh, she, she refused to believe that her dad committed suicide, and she refused to believe that... Uh, that, that, that um, Nazis had to kill millions of people. She even argued she was a revisionist, and she argued that the Jews really were responsible for their own demise. Uh, she was um, uh, part of this uh, loyal. She remained loyal to all this, and she even had some followers in the neo-Nazi movement, and they described her as a dazzling Nazi princess, a deity among the believers in the old times. Till the day she died, unrepentant. Stubborn. We would call her stubborn. We would call her hard-headed. Uh, we, you know, if you're the less generous people, maybe you'd call her evil. Uh, if you're a little bit more generous, you may just call her deceived. 
And uh, we just look at that and say, how can you think these things? How can you even go there? How can you even believe this? But she remained firm till the day she died, believing in the Nazi cause. And I say that ironically because that is kind of how Isaiah describes people, not just, just people in general. He describes the Assyrians that way. He describes the Babylonians that way. And ironically enough, he even describes Israel that way, God's people, that they are stubborn and hard-headed. And in fact, in, in chapter 48, in my NIV, they, the, the editors titled chapter 48, Stubborn Israel. And, uh, and Moses, this has been a problem since, since God called Abraham. The people were stubborn. They were, they, Moses called them stiff-necked. Uh, I love the way that, that uh, Isaiah, he's a little bit more artistic. He doesn't call them stiff-necked or stubborn. Where, he, where Moses called them stiff-necked, he says that they have, uh, have the, muscle, the muscles in their neck were made of iron. And he didn't, he didn't call them hard-headed like we would. He said their forehead was made of bronze. And, uh, and I thought that pretty much describes a hard-headed person with their forehead made of bronze. And uh, <clears throat> so that's how they described Israel. It's a good thing that we Christians never behave that way. But, of course, we do. Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann says the job of the prophet, of the Old Testament prophet, was to criticize and energize. And that's exactly what we have in the book of Isaiah. He takes 48 and he's, he's critical of, of Israel. He's, telling their, their, he's talking about them and, and, and how, they, how they're behaving. But at the same time, he says, I, I delayed in my wrath. And, and he finally delayed where he could, could not take it any longer and he had to act. And so, but the problem is you've got this, this, this people who are stubborn with bronze foreheads and iron for necks and, and they don't want to move and they, they, they are twisting around in just about every which way except the right way. And, and God is frustrated. God is disappointed. He's grieving. He actually aches. Chapter 48, he talks about God aching over this because they are suffering so much and they should know better if they would just listen. He even kind of describes himself as sort of this hand-wringing parent who just says, if you just listen to me, you wouldn't be in this mess. If you would just hear me, if you would just obey what I'm telling you, I'm giving you good counsel, just listen. And he's like his parents, you know, as we sit at home, wringing our hands over our kids. And that's the picture we get of God. And so we've got this, this puzzlement of, of rebellious Israel, and yet at the same time, we've got these eternal promises that God made to Abraham, that he's going to work his people, he's going to work with his people, he's going to rescue them, he's going to use them, and he's going to work through them. And so you've got this, this puzzlement of what do we do with Israel rebellious, and yet God's promise, and the answer is in 49, behold the servant. That's how he's going to do it. He's going to do it with what he calls the servant. This is the second ser servant psalm that we're going to be looking at. This is God's people, God's purpose, and you have God's aches and grief, but what's the answer? Behold the servant. And so we get introduced against to the, again to the servant in chapter 49, and last week, if you remember, I mentioned that he kind of starts off with this broad perspective here, and then starts to narrow it down with the other with the with the psalms that with the songs that come after this, and so he talks about this broad perspective in in, in chapter forty two of uh, this servant and kind of implies that it's the nation of Israel, 
But here in chapter 49, we start to get a little bit narrow view of it. It's like the name Israel is now being transferred to an individual person. And he says in, in verse 1, he said, Listen to me, you islands, you, you coastlands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my birth and was made mention of my name. So now we're starting to see the, the picture sort of focus in on, on a person. And he, in this first section, this first couple of verses, he talks about his birth. He is both royal and he is prophetic. And these, these descriptions of, of God calling you from the birth, calling you in the womb, he's named them. It's, 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 that's how kings are described. That's how princes are described when they were, they're going to take over the nation, that they have been called from birth to be this royal person. But not only is he royalty, he's also prophetic. He has a prophetic ministry. He's, he says his words will be like a sword hidden in God's hands. And it will be like an arrow that's polished, that's hidden in the quiver. In other words, it is ready for God to use. It is words that have come out of his mouth that are, that are sharpened, that will be able to cut, to cut away the trash and the garbage and the rebellion. And they're sharpened like an arrow that will reach its target. So this servant is not only royal, but he is also, he is also prophetic. And then he goes on to talk about this surprise that he is going to work for and through Israel. Not just for Israel, but he's also going to work through Israel. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob, to gather Israel to himself. And I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, for God is my strength. It's this reaffirmation of his ministry. He, he, the servant even actually has a little bit of insecurity here. He says, he says I, I don't know if this is going to pull off. I think the people are too far gone. But God comes back and says, no, it will happen. It will restore Israel. You will restore Israel. You will restore Jacob. But not only that, and he goes on to say, that's just too small of a vision. That's not big enough. Israel is just not big enough. You will restore Israel, but you will also restore the nations. And right from the very beginning of this chapter where he talks about the coastlands, he's, what he, the idea is the known world. In other words, the people that reach all the way to the oceans. It's the entire world. In other words, this message of hope really is no hope at all unless it is global. Unless it applies to every single person on the planet. And he's saying, the, just think about Israel. That's great. You will restore Israel, but it's going to be bigger than this. That's too small. Your vision is bigger. It is global. It is going to encompass the entire planet, all the nations, all the Gentiles, not just Israel. And he brings about this new revelation and a new commission. And we have in verses 7 through 12. And this is, he has two, two, two sections in this, in this, uh, this last paragraph. And both, both, both of them start, Thus says the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. He says, this is what the Lord says. The Redeemer of the Holy One of Israel, to him was despised and abhorred by the nation. To the servant of rulers, kings will, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And what's so great about this one verse, he is saying that Israel will be free from pagan rule. There will be a true king rising up. 
and he will liberate them from the pagan rule. There will be a rule, a new worldwide ruler, and it is the servant of Yahweh. One of the phrases that we hear recently uh, kind of tossed around is regime change. You know, a change of regime. We see it internationally, we see it in our own country, talking about changing the regime. Well, we, I don't know, I'm, I'm in my 60s now, and I, I realize these regime changes are pretty much, much much of the same. They don't really change very much. It's just more of the same thing. But this is true regime change. This is true changing of ruler. This is the servant of Yahweh. And it will be a different kingdom. And it will be a different rule. And he says he will come in and they will, the kings and princes will, at first they'll stand up out of respect, but then they will fall down and worship. So not only is it freeing Israel from pagan rule, it's also going to free Israel and the people from pagan idols. The idols are what keep us entrapped and keep us imprisoned. And he says, even the kings and the princes will rise up and then bow down. And Isaiah is telling them this right under the noses of Babylon itself. He is saying they will be free right, in the nose, right under the nose of Babylon. And it reminds me of, of Paul in the book of Acts. At the very end of the book of Acts, he is proclaiming Jesus is Lord, and he is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven right under the nose of the Romans. He's in Rome proclaiming a new kingdom. And Paul takes this, this idea, and he also takes a direct quote from Isaiah when he says, when he says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That is a direct quote out of the book of Isaiah. But then Paul goes on to tell us who this servant is. Every knee will bow, including kings and princes, and every tongue will confess, even the nations and the coastlands, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is taking Isaiah and applying it to Jesus and saying this is what Isaiah was talking about. This is our hope in Jesus the Messiah. It is the new revelation and new commission. And then he goes, and then he says in verse 8, this is what the Lord says again. Thus saith the Lord again in verse 8. And he gives us these images of what this hope looks like. And we talk a lot about hope at Christmas time. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a little bit, but we just have no idea really what hope is all about. But he gives us an idea of what hope is, these images of hope. There's an image of security. He says in verse 8 that this is the time of my favor and I will answer you in the day of, of salvation and I will help you. I will keep you in my hand and I will make you a covenant for the people and restore the land to reassign the desolate to, of the inheritance. He says, I will keep you in my hand. There's a sense of security and, and safety in his hand. And he says, you will be the covenant. The person will be the covenant. Isaiah calls the Savior a covenant. John calls the Savior the Word. We're basically talking about the same thing. We usually think of covenant as a written contract or something that's engraved. We think of the Word as something spoken or something written. And both Isaiah and John say, no, 
The person is the covenant. The person is the word. And he says they will, he will bring security to the people. The image of liberation. He says the prisoners will come out. We saw this in the last poem uh, last Sunday, that he will call the prisoners out. Whatever prison we happen to be in, whether it's a prison of addiction or a prison of, of our own making or a prison that maybe someone else has put us in, maybe it's a prison of abuse, maybe it's a prison of guilt and shame, whatever it is, he's going to call us out. And he has this strange phrase, phrase, show yourself. And I'm thinking, what does he mean by that? And the only thing I can think of is that the person in prison is full of shame. You don't go to prison unless you're, you know, void of shame. You're full of shame. But he's saying, no, come on out. Come on out. You're free. And I think we've got to realize that when, when the Old Testament talks about forgiveness of sins, he, it, he's not, the prophet is not talking about just avoiding hell or going to heaven. That picture's too small. The forgiveness of sin is huge. It's gigantic. There's security. There's freedom. There is liberation. There's leaving the shame behind, leaving the guilt behind. And says, he says, come out of the prison. Come out of the darkness and be free because of the work of the servant. There's an image of flourishing. And he talks about that they will come in and the, and the land will be flourishing with, with water and, and grain and crops. And, the, and he, this is Exodus language that he's using here. And what he's saying is that this is going to be a new Exodus. You're not going to go back to the way things were. You know, sometimes we want to go, I just wish things were the way they used to be. But we reuse this because we have a twisted view of what used to be. We only remember maybe the good stuff. But what God is calling, what the prophet is calling us is something new, a new exodus, a new creation. This is what he's calling us to. And it is a place of flourishing. And we all know, and last week I made the, the comment that I was amazed to see how coordinated the Gospel of John and Isaiah seemed to be. And we see this again. How many times in the Gospel of John did he mention that he was the source of living water? I mean, one of my favorite passages, besides, well, he meets the Samaritan woman and offers her living water. But there's also this other, other passage that I absolutely love where there's celebration of the Feast of Booths, and this is the happiest time of the year. This is the, this is the big happy time for the Jewish calendar. This is the big party. This is their Thanksgiving. And everybody's going crazy. It's just, it's just the loud people, and, and, the, and the priest gets up there, and, and he says, he pulls a, a, a pitcher of water out of, the, out, of the, out of the well of Jacob and pours it out and says, and quotes Isaiah and says, living water will come from you. You know, we get, we get living water from you. And then Jesus stands up with the crowd and says, hey, if you're still thirsty, come to me. He's saying, you have tasted everything, the best that Judaism has to offer, and if you're still thirsty, come to me. And this is the picture Isaiah paints here in chapter 49. This place of flourishing, this place of living water, this place of tasting water and never, and never thirsting again, never getting hungry again. And finally, it is an image of accessibility for every single person on the planet. He talks about raising the highway. He talks about flattening the mountains, making the way straight. 
And we saw that in the last chapter, last time we looked at, but it's kind of the idea that we make the straight way straight for God, for him to turn, for the servant to arrive and to come. Like that's the ministry of John the Baptist. Well, now he's saying, I will make this way straight. I will make the way wide. When we present Jesus, when we present Jesus to other people, sometimes we, we present Jesus as somebody that stands in the way of God. And Jesus is saying, this, Isaiah is saying here, no, this, no, the way is big. Jesus is the way and it's open. His arms are open for every single person. It is an image of, of infinite accessibility. I think the poem actually ends there. But I wanted to add, and I asked Ronnie to read these three extra verses, four extra verses of 13 to 16. Because I think it kind of sums it up. I, this is how the, this, the psalm ended last week too with this call to celebrate, to sing. And he ends it the same way here in verse 13 through 16. He says, shout for joy, O heavens. Shout for joy, O heavens. <clears throat> Burst into the song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. If I were to pick a major theme of Isaiah, especially these chapters 40 to 55, it would have to be comfort. That seems to go over and over again. And remember, chapter 40 is when we begin this, this long poem that he writes from 40 to 55. And the poem begins, Nakmu, Nakmu, Ami. Comfort, comfort my people. Twice he says that. And then the book ends in 66, in verse 13, he says, As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Comfort is this thread that runs through the prophet's book of comfort from him. I am he who comforts. It begins and ends with me. And what he is saying is that, that the suffering of our suffering, the suffering of Israel, the suffering of human beings, that's our responsibility. But the suffering for redemption's sake, that's God's responsibility. And of course, we know that from the New Testament of Jesus who took on the suffering of humankind for our redemption. That's his responsibility. The servant suffers for others. That suffering is a part of God's grief. And he says, I can't wait any longer. I have to act. I can't put this off any longer. God's despair is at the point, his disappointment is at the point where he says, I have to act. And that's why he is so concerned about the downtrodden and the oppressed and the destitute that seems to have these themes mentioned over and over and over again, that he is going to comfort them. And what does Zion say? Oh, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God responds, no, I'm carrying you. He says, no, I care for you. How can a mother forget her nursing child? I have you engraved on my hands. How could I forget you? I have you in my hands. And that, make, that, that image of having your names engraved on the hands of the servant takes on a whole new meaning in the New Testament. Where Jesus shows Thomas the wounds of his hand and says, go ahead and stick your fingers there. 
Your name is engraved on my hands. How could I forget you? This is a new hope and a new revelation. It's not that the hope of Israel has been abandoned. It's that the hope of Israel has been expanded. Expanded to be global. How can a mother forget? He's affirming his promise to Israel, but he's also expanding his promise to Israel. God's plan for salvation is a, is a, is a plan of hope and comfort. But it would not be any plan of hope and comfort if it didn't include everybody on the planet. If the way wasn't accessible to everyone. It is universal for us. And that is our mission. That is our co-mission that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28. I believe Isaiah is asking us to make a decision here. That he's asking us to decide. That, um, and it's hard to make a decision when you're in exile. I, I know that. And I know, I know sometimes we feel like we're in exile. And it's hard to make those decisions. The depressed people can't make the decision, and the despairing people feel like, why bother? Nothing's going to happen. But the job of the prophet, I believe, is to make our yearnings and our longings public, articulated, said out loud. Because I, I've thought a lot about hope this week, and what a vague word that is. And I think that <clears throat> that we sometimes feel like, especially in the middle of in the pandemic and all these things, we, I feel like we have waited so long that we don't even know what we're hoping for anymore. We say we have hope, but what is that? What are we hoping for? It's not just optimism. It's not just, you know, something I can't remember, some vague idea. But this is Christmas is supposedly about hope. But hope just says that we refuse to accept the version of reality that is presented to us. On the one hand, we say, whatever you're telling me about reality, that is simply not true. And at the same time, it's also subversive. It undercuts this definition of reality. It undercuts the pride. It undercuts the people who make these grandiose promises, who do a lot of grandstanding, who want to get their face on TV. It undercuts all that. It's a very subversive. It's a different kind of hope. It puts a cap on the pride, and it puts a cap on the thirst for power. That this is different. I'm not talking about some you know, evolutionary advancement of technology. I mean, technology is great, uh, but that's just basic optimism, that things we can fix anything because we're smart people. That's just, okay, it's optimistic. But this hope is based on the promises of the Holy One of God. This is, this is a radical reassessment. This is this promises of this servant who stands apart from us, who stands over us, but remarkably also stands for us and with us.
That's the servant. Hope is this language of God. Hope is this language that God and I have together. Hope is this language of God that this personal God has with his beloved community. It's the language we speak. Hope for all of us is this language of, of, of trusting speech from God and faithful listening on our part. God faithfully, trustingly speaks and we faithfully listen. That's the language. Where his faithfulness then vetoes my faithlessness. So he speaks and I listen. And before God speak, Israel spoke, Israel was in despair, was hopeless. But aren't we all? Before God speaks, we are hopeless. But when God speaks, we have hope. Hope is the language of trusting speech and just faithful listening. It is, goes against despair. It goes against chaos. It goes against a barrenness. It goes against exile. It's listening to what he says. Now, the other side of that coin is not just this happy-go-lucky, aren't we Christians, and we just smile all the time, but the other side of that coin is that we participate in God's grief as well. We also participate in his ache. And what I mean by that is we just have a radical reassessment of the situation. If we don't assess the situation correctly, we're just being naively optimistic. But this is somebody, this is people we know and, and participate in his grief. We listen. And I would encourage you to listen to the people around you. And those who speak the language of hope most vigorously, they're usually the people who experience death most painfully. It's the people who have been through it, who've been through the ache, who've been through the, the grief, who've been through the fallenness of humankind. They're the ones who seem to be able to speak hope most vigorously. And those are the people we need to listen to. When God speaks, we listen faithfully. No speech from God, and we end up living in despair. But the prophet announces, the hope has come. And we trust that. We believe that. So Isaiah is making basically, inviting us, to make a decision. He's inviting us throughout the book to make a decision of this contrast we keep seeing over and over again of between these idols and the true God. He's making us, he's inviting us to, to make a decision to take these idols who need to be kept propped up. We got to build them up so they don't topple down. We got to carry them around with us. And we got to completely always defend it and try to argue the existence and argue that, he, that, he, that this is really a God. But you know, when you're in exile, that gets really tiring. You don't really have energy to carry around a God, whatever he may be or she may be. We don't have the energy to do that. 
And he's inviting us to choose between this God that we have to carry around or to choose between the God of Israel who does the carrying for us. The God who carries us. Those are our two options. And it's much better when you don't have a lot of energy to spare. It's much better to have a God who is responsible for his own godness instead of me having to make sure this God is standing up and staying up upright. Whether it's my legalism or my moral codes or whether it's addiction or whatever it is and I have to keep it fed. It's much better to have a God who is free and able to carry me. And I don't have to defend him. I don't have to argue him. I don't have to take up the fight for him. He carries me. One of the hymns we like to sing <clears throat> at Christmas time, the, word, the first verse goes like this. <clears throat> God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we are gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. O tidings of comfort and joy. And, and I'm afraid that there's, that there's so many Christians today where the message of the gospel is not a tiding of comfort and joy. But it is. And Isaiah is inviting us to embrace the God of comfort and joy. That's what he's calling us to do. I don't know if you've ever been, to a, been in a place where you just can't sing. Where it's in such despair, such feelings of exile that you just can't bring yourself to sing. I, I've been in that position a few times. And the one time I remember most is uh, my father passed away pretty young. I was about 25, 26 maybe. And um, uh, right after Thanksgiving. And then it was right when Advent starts. And so I'm on the front on staff at a, at, a, at a pretty large Methodist church. And I'm sitting up front and I could not sing those hymns. I could not sing those Christmas carols. I couldn't bring myself to do it. But verse 13 says, Rejoice first in the song, because I am the God of comfort. Good tidings of comfort and joy. He's saying that God is rolling up his sleeves to win the battle, and he is gently carrying the lambs close to his chest. And he says, It's, it's all here the power, the comfort, the nurture is all here in the servant. That this is new again. And I believe the change comes that we can sing again when we realize that we are being addressed, we are being called, he mentions our name, and we embrace, we embrace the God of comfort and joy. And he carries us. We don't have to carry him. We don't have to defend him. We don't want to fight for him. He is the strong arm. And he's gentle with us as a pastor is with the lamb, as a shepherd is with the lamb.
Tidings of comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. Hope is the language of trusting speech and faithful listening. And that's what we do at Christmas time. That's what we do all year round, but especially at Christmas time. Faithful speech, trusting speech, and faithful listening. We're going to celebrate communion this morning.